And good evening, everyone, from the high desert, as Art used to say, in the beautiful land of enchantment where we had an annular eclipse today, which we'll get to in a moment. This is going to be a very complicated, but I hope historic show, because we have so much to cover, and unfortunately, it's against the backdrop of absolute horrors and tragedy and impending catastrophe in the Middle East. And toward the end of the show, I'm going to hopefully lay some some breadcrumbs for a show we're working on, maybe for next weekend, if I can assemble all the elements, to show why what we're doing tonight is in fact directly connected to the extraordinary horror going on in the Middle East, which looks to be a major nexus in world history. Uh, I have all kinds of forebodings about what's about to occur, but I don't think it's accidental. I don't think in the uh, litany of things we've talked about, everything, everywhere, all at once, that it's accidental or coincidental that there are now two major wars on the planet in which we, the United States, are either indirectly or potentially directly involved. At the same time, we have a dysfunctional Congress where one party cannot even agree on a temporary Speaker of the House for the first time booted out in the history of the United States. And, of course, we're going to talk about tonight some extraordinary, literally world-changing, game-changing, historic discoveries on the moon, which, if they are followed up, if they are, if 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 they are um, appropriately appreciated, have the potential for changing the context of the things that are going on on planet Earth tonight, because they introduce the X outside factor. What happens to human beings if they ever are confronted with absolute, irrevocable evidence? that A, we are not alone, and B, some of the ETs showing up are in fact members of the extended human family, and C, there are bad guys out there, and they apparently are messing with and intervening in, in total contravention of uh, Gene's prime directive, in the affairs of planet Earth. And all those dots, which we can document, I mean, you all know how I really love good, hard data. There is hard data to support these very, very expansive and sweeping uh, contextual comments for the horrors that are going on in the Middle East tonight. So that gets rid of item number one in my uh, Radio with Pictures items for all of you new folks who are coming over to us tonight to kind of see what we're doing from coast because uh, I got a last minute invitation from Lisa and George and on um, Monday night I did two hours <clears throat> minus an hour and a half of commercials. <laughs> I don't see how they do that over there because you can't follow a thought. You can't follow a train of, of, of interaction, etc., etc. So for all the people who were just kind of tantalized in the coast audience who came here, who came here tonight to actually um, partake of the 
smorgasbord of amazing data that we have. Uh, and I don't, un oh, there, there, that background noise. See, it's not even Mercury retrograde and we're having some calm problems, which have gone away, luckily. Anyway, for all of you from coast who wanted to know what's really going on, we have had two extraordinary historical breakthroughs in our research. Breakthroughs which have literally changed the game. They have turned everything upside down, and we'll get to those in a moment. But I want to start with my second item, which of course is a uh, news item coming from, I believe, the New York Times, about the ring eclipse, the uh, annular eclipse which crossed from Oregon down through the western United States, exited into the Gulf of Mexico uh, uh, over Texas, and then continued on down to South America. Um, we had an extraordinary view here in um, New Mexico, and I was doing measurements. I was doing hyperdimensional measurements, and uh, I'm going to leave it to one of our guests tonight to describe visually what it looked like from just a few miles away here in northern New Mexico, which for, you know, a couple, three hours was truly the land of enchantment. So we'll get to that momentarily. I want to start now in on item number three. Again, for those of you who are new to the show, you go to the other side of midnight.com, you click on tonight's banner, which says very dramatically, and believe me, we can back this up, which says, have we found, let me do it exactly, did Apollo 12 find another Stonehenge on the moon? Because in fact, geometrically, celestially, in every way, it looks like that's exactly what the Apollo 12 astronauts did. And it has been confirmed by other space programs, not even domestic, that is of the United States. So we'll get back to that momentarily. Um, item number three. In the last few weeks, there's been a major shift politically in discussing extraterrestrial life. For decades, it has fallen to the Air Force or the intelligence agencies to explain, actually to explain away, um, the uh, bizarre problems dealing with extraterrestrials, UFOs, UAPs, etc., etc. And a few weeks ago, the current administrator of NASA, uh, former Senator Bill Nelson, formally opened, as I predicted last spring, opened an office dedicated to UAP, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon, and with some pressing from outside and inside folks, actually named within a few hours the director so we can all check up what's going on that's item number three the most important part of this new office as was forecast in the spring um four hour you know youtube video preview uh of their 16 consultants was that one of the scientists said that extraterrestrial artifacts or they call them these days techno signatures meaning things left by high-tech civilizations or maybe not so high-tech would be part of the current nasa uap study well just in time because as you may have noted 
There is incredible disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, non-information ricocheting back and forth in the UFO slash UAP community, which, of course, NASA cannot help but be drawn into this ever-going 30, 40, 50-year soap opera, which has always swirled around the ET UFO question, you know, are what we're seeing in the skies even 75, 80 years ago or 100 years ago, are they part of an extraterrestrial civilization? Are they some super advanced secret civilization on the planet? Are they time travelers? Are they real bona fide aliens, etc., etc., etc.? As I've said now steadfastly for many, many years, the way to cut through this noise, the way to solve the problem once and for all, has to do with artifacts and ruins and evidence of alien signatures, techno-signatures on nearby planets, beginning with the moon. And then there's Mars, and there's Mercury, and there's the moons of Jupiter and the moons of Saturn. There's bizarre asteroids, which are not left over from the formation of the solar system, but in fact, some of them have all the earmarks of ancient, ancient, very battered, ruined spacecraft, space habitats, or even spacecraft. And even if they measure miles across for a sufficiently advanced technology, remember Arthur Clarke's, um, you know, famous third law, any sufficiently advanced technology, even from ETs, is going to be indistinguishable from magic. So while we, tonight, here on Earth, cannot create spacecraft that are thousands of feet across, or many miles, or even tens of miles, for whoever left this stuff around the solar system, that would have been, you know, de rigueur, it would have been duck soup, it would have been part of their extraordinarily advanced understanding of the universe, of the laws of physics, and control of gravity all of which come along for the ride if you can verify that some of the things that NASA has seen in deep space, meaning beyond the planets, beyond the Earth-Moon system, are in fact extraterrestrial relics of an extraordinarily advanced bygone civilization, or maybe more than one civilization. And the fact that NASA now has a formal office where evidence and papers and documentation and real data can be submitted is the astonishing breakthrough that I think is going to shatter, maybe not tomorrow, but in the next few months at the outside, I think, given the rate at which things are progressing on the UFO, UAP front, that will shatter the paradigm that the only way we're ever going to know if we're alone is if some UFO comes and lands on the proverbial White House lawn. No, there is another door. It's the artifact doorway. It's the ancient ruins doorway. It's the actual physical samples of some of their extraordinary technology doorway. Which brings me to item number four. One of the two main things that I talked about on Coast on Monday night was that we've had two astonishing breakthroughs in the last month. The second one we're going to talk about tonight, the Stonehenge on the Moon. 
The first one I talked about here in a couple of shows we devoted, the so-called Abbey Loeb Challenge. And if you look at my item number four, here is one example, a thin section of an Apollo 16 moon rock, which shows clearly and unequivocally ET nanotechnology, ET machines imprisoned inside this absolutely randomly selected rock. I had no time to go through thousands of photographs. I went to the Apollo 16 NASA website, clicked on petrology, which is where the geology of thin section rocks hangs out, and the first image I brought up showed something astonishing, which is number four. There are little machines and fragments of bigger machines in a rock sample which is measuring about two millimeters across. Now you're going to say to yourself, how the hell can there be a nano machine that measures less than a millimeter? Well, we'll leave that for a future further discussion, but it's part of this breakthrough series that the Enterprise mission has been undergoing over the last few weeks and months because there are 842 pounds of Apollo moon rocks on Earth tonight. And our challenge to Dr. Abby Loeb, which we expressed first on this show, and then I did it again on Coast on Monday night, and I will reiterate it here, please prove us wrong. As a tenured professor at Harvard, as the former head, the director of the Harvard College Observatory, as a major player in the international scientific community in astronomy and cosmology, let alone in his newly chosen role as a leading principal investigator checking out UAP, potential extraterrestrial spacecraft operating either in the Earth's atmosphere or like with a Muamua, sailing in from interstellar space and then sailing out again, my challenge then, my challenge tonight, and my challenge for the next foreseeable future will be, Dr. Loeb, please prove us wrong. Enter the political framework of NASA. Request those samples that are made available freely by the agency to tenured and well-backgrounded experts such as yourself. Bring to bear the same technologies that confirmed that whatever entered the Earth's atmosphere and was tracked by the Pentagon radars back in 2014 and then dredged up as little microscopic BB-sized samples from two miles down off Indonesia in the South Pacific and then brought into the Harvard labs and analyzed to where the elemental composition was decidedly not solar system derived, but interstellar chemical composition derived, including key elements that allowed one of our guests uh, a few uh, weeks ago, Dr. John Brandenburg, from his background as a nuclear weapons physicist, familiar with the full panoply of how you build nuclear weapons on Earth, he has said categorically, both on air on our show, as well as in a peer-reviewed paper published a couple weeks ago out of India, that the materials that Abby Loeb analyzed 
rather than being any random ET artificial elemental mix, in fact converged on one most likely explanation for the titanium, the lithium, the beryllium, the iron, without nickel, because nickel and iron go together in the solar system, this, whatever entered the atmosphere in 2014, had no nickel, but a lot of iron. And the most interesting and telltale composition included uranium. It was Brandenburg's technical and expert conclusion, having worked with nuclear technology for all his professional life, that whatever entered the atmosphere was in fact a nuclear technology. And I know that the night he was on, he tried to put a kind of a nice face on it by talking about the Orion uh, nuclear propulsion technology, which uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, Atomic Energy Commission dallied with back in the 1950s and 60s until President Kennedy said no and voted to go with Project Apollo instead. But in fact, the alternative to an Orion propulsion technology which would have the same bizarre elemental composition as Loeb measured, is in fact the casing, the melted droplets of an actual nuclear weapon. Which brings me back to item number one and the impending catastrophe, the war catastrophe that's just on the verge of ensuing in the Middle East. If we can in fact identify that someone out there is not very happy with Earth and is sending us oblique and rather overt messages. It will meld into the larger matrix that our first contact with extraterrestrials may not be the so-called Space Brothers, but may in fact be someone else who does not have the best interests of the human race at heart and what John Brandenburg analyzed after Avi Loeb brought it up from the bottom of the ocean off Indonesia could in fact be part of a developing scenario that we all need to pay very close attention to on the eve of whatever is going to unfold in Israel tomorrow or the next day or the next. Item number five. Um, this brings us to, of course, the so-called Stonehenge on the Moon. Um, a few years ago, a dedicated physicist, who is also an avid planetologist and uh, follower of the uh, international space efforts, posted two items, which are my number five and number six. Item number three, I'm sorry, item number five, is a recounting of the history of the Surveyor 3 mission, touching the face of the moon. And item number six is a recounting by the same physicist, whose name is Drew, and you can click on those and that will take you to his website and his background and all that. He's done a really great job of overviewing both of these missions, the Surveyor mission being unmanned, the Apollo 12 mission being manned, and most uniquely in NASA history, in 1967, in um, April, on April 20th, NASA managed to land 
the Surveyor 3 spacecraft uh, on the moon in an area called Oceanus Procellarum, the Ocean of Storms. And then two and a half years later, on November 19th, the Apollo 12 crew, the second crew in the Apollo program series to follow Apollo 11 in July of 69, in November, on November 19th of 69, P. Conrad and Alan Bean landed the Apollo lunar module on the rim of the uh, 500-foot diameter crater, now known as the Surveyor Crater, where they could literally depart their lunar module, collect samples, take lots of photographs, and then walk over to the Surveyor, clip off some of the key components, and bring them all back from the moon. That, as of about a week and a half to two weeks ago, is the overview of my intimate knowledge of both the Surveyor mission and the Apollo 12 visitation of the Surveyor 3 landing site. And then um, an amateur named Marty McGuire, who is the backyard astronomy guy from Pennsylvania, self-labeled on his website, which is uh, linked in item number eight. Uh, on number seven, he posted on Reddit a comparison of Chandrayaan-2 orbital imagery from lunar orbit looking down on the Apollo sites, both Apollo 11 and Apollo 12. And the reason he had highlighted the Apollo 12 landing is as you can see in item number seven, if you look at the shadow of the lunar module and the descent stage right there in the middle, in the lower right-hand corner, just above the um, caption, which says um, ISRO, credit ISRO 221405. On that date, the Indian orbiter from the mission preceding the successful Chandrayaan-3 uh, went into orbit around the moon in 2021, uh, actually back in 2019. And in 2021, it photographed just a few hundred feet from the uh, surviving lower stage of the lunar module, seen there very brilliantly uh, in, in terms of uh, its shadow. It saw something absolutely extraordinary which was a round circle of stones configured in a very artificial-looking uh, configuration, which in fact looks all the world like some kind of ancient stone circle a la Stonehenge on the moon. Now, McGuire has done no analysis. He simply posted the images. Um, his website is full of very detailed ISRO imagery, it's kind of hard to get to the raw imagery, um, but uh, he did it, and he left instructions on his website for how others can do it. Now, this was not, of course, the first orbital imaging of the Apollo sites. That fell to NASA uh, and the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which was launched into lunar orbit in 2009, but didn't get around to taking close-up images from a 30-mile orbit until 2011. And on the 30-mile imagery from LRO, the circle we're going to talk about extensively tonight, 
is, unless you know exactly where it is from the Chandrayaan 2 imagery, it just is not blatantly obvious. It can be just passed over as just a bunch of rocks because the smaller ones, due to the limitations of the LRO imaging, are just not visible. Now, in 2021, the uh, NASA agency lowered the orbit of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter from 31 miles down to 13. And they took another series of images of all the Apollo sites. And that is where you see in number nine, the uh, Surveyor Crater, the location of Surveyor 3, the location of the Intrepid Lunar Module uh, Descent Stage, um, and the circle. But it's interesting that of all the places where NASA could have put the caption for the Intrepid Lunar Lander, they put it right over the location of what we're thinking strongly tonight is the stone circle. Now, was this just an accident? Or was this an effort to get people who might have noticed something odd on the much closer imaging to simply not see it over the background or under the background of the intrepid uh, annotation? We will not know that until someone in NASA tells us the truth. Which brings me now to item number 10. Item number 10 is a comparison between a surveyor surface image from the Apollo 12 crew. This is a shot taken by Alan Bean, uh, standing very close to the surveyor spacecraft, which is in the background. On the right-hand side on the comparison is the um, overhead shot from Chandrayaan 2, showing the circle. And as you can see in Holger Eisenberg's um, annotated image, he has circled the central stone of the circle seen from orbit, and lo and behold, it is in fact a tetrahedron. Now, there is a lot more. We're getting down to the bottom of the hour here. If you look at number 11, the thing that I noticed, which is now a uh, wide angle showing the descent stage of Apollo 12, Intrepid on the upper left, the circle is in the lower right. There is an alignment across the circle to that central stone, which is the tallest one. You can see that by simply looking at the shadows. And it's a tetrahedron, and it appears to be perfectly aligned to a much larger object about, um, well, if the circle, as we measured, is about 30 feet across, uh, this is about uh, seven or eight feet uh, in, in length and maybe five feet high, it's a very large object on the lunar landscape, and the circle in that northeast direction appears to have an alignment directly toward it, which, of course, opens up the question, what is that object? Which, of course, caused me, and as you'll hear momentarily, Holger, to go through the archives with a fine-tooth comb, and I found a relatively close shot from about 200 feet away, um, taken by Alan Bean. I enlarged it. As you can see, I did two versions, a properly contrast-enhanced version on the right and an overexposed version on the left, so you can see into the shadows from scattered uh, uh, light off the lunar surface. And you can see it's got planar sides, it's got edges, it's got sharp corners. It looks like it's a um, pentagram with the top in disarray, 
the bottom in good shape with some kind of an opening on the right-hand side. In other words, it appears to be a very peculiar, planar box. Not a rock, but a box, which includes a very sharp right-angle shadow on the upper left of the right-hand image. And we'll get to details, you know, as we move through the morning. Well, as one of the things that I did, I went and began measuring the alignments between all the so-called rocks, both within the circle and outside around its perimeter. And I've got 11 green arrows with lines connecting, showing this extraordinary set of alignments up to and including four separate objects which are literally aligned with something on the horizon. So what could that possibly be? Well, we're at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight, and we will talk about this with our panel tonight when we return. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, um, October 14th. Gosh, the year is going by at warp nine. So this is our, our hypothesis, that this is, in fact, this circle of stones with a tetrahedron in the center, tallest of them all, aimed at a large structure to the northeast on the moon, according to the current 
uh, azimuth alignments was in fact intended to attract attention from whoever would develop spaceflight here on Earth, who would someday go to the moon, find this circle, land next to it, go to the box-like structure, open it, and extract something of vital importance to the human race. And then something happened. Okay, uh, let me go to my guests, and I want to introduce Holger, because um, his uh, uh, part of the puzzle is he spent the last week incredibly, painstakingly, backtracking our research so that he could find all of the available photography. You know Holger, he's a a systems computer uh, expert. He immigrated from Germany in 1999, I'm sorry, in 2016. He's, you know, employed gainfully up and down Silicon Valley. He's an expert in computer image processing. He discovered the background to the strangely colored Viking imagery some decades ago. And you can read everyone's bio. I don't want to spend a lot of time on bios tonight because they are on the other side of midnight. Just click on the fast links to bios on the guest page underneath the uh, banner. So without further ado, Holger, what did you find as you began to look into this mysteriously, delightfully mysterious puzzle? Richard is having uh, problems hearing all of us, but we can hear each other. So, Holker, why don't you just uh, take the ball and run with it? Yeah. I can tell about the discovery. Yes, I saw it first on on Twitter while reading news on uh, September 21 this year, one day before Equinox. And uh, it, it, I just saw a normal posting from someone who is working in the, uh, I guess, space science field, or at least an uh, enthusiast about space science, space flight, and he posted it just as general um, uh, high-resolution photos from the Chandrayaan-2 mission showing the Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 lander sites uh, from actually year 21, two years ago, but the posting was from this year. And mm-hmm. as soon as you click on the image, you see on the lower right this mysterious bouldering of 10 meter diameter, slightly larger than the Apollo 12 uh, landing platform. And at, at first I was thinking that someone might have faked the image, which of course happens today. But uh, then uh, you I could find confirmations from lunar reconnaissance orbiter images on official NASA websites, which uh, were a bit difficult to find because NASA reorganized organized their website uh, during the recent three weeks, and some URLs might have changed. So uh, if you see something missing, uh, that's due to the new website design. But there it was. Uh, the ring was there on the lunar reconnaissance orbiter images from 2011. And uh, I also checked older images from also from Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter in lower resolution, and there you can see it vaguely. Then uh, looked at other uh, 
it's the other mission, uh, the lunar orbiter was an earlier mission in 1967, which I wanted also to check for verification that it was not introduced maybe by the, the astronauts on the surface. Uh, but uh, even on the Lunar Orbiter 3 mission 1967, you see it not, you don't see the ring itself, but you see the central stone. Uh, so there was something there in 1967 already. So that means uh, it was not built by modern men, the astronauts. That's, uh, that is huh. clear. And, you Holger, know, why don't you direct people to your your photographs? Yeah, that was the last one I talked about was item eight, the lunar orbiter three image from 1967, where you can see the uh, the planned surveyor three site, uh, the lower right uh, marking. It was before the landing of the robotic probe surveyor three in 1967 taken. Uh, so that nothing is there visible there before the landing. You see a, a bright X on the left, which looks like something on the surface, but that is a, a resort mark on the camera, on the Vidicon camera of the lunar orbiter. The, the bright X there, that is imaging artifact from the camera. And on top, on the upper side, you see the mark with circle center, that is a the center stone of this 10 meter diameter circle we see on the more recent images. But here on this old one, you see the center stone. So something is actually really there on the surface. You did a remarkable job of um, uh, sleuthing there. The, uh, because I could not, I could not believe it. <laughs> because I have seen so many uh, artif potential artifacts on on the moon and Mars over the years, and uh, after, after the first phase on Mars and some, some, some pyramids, I have not uh, seen something similar. And sometimes they're but, just rocks. I know. See, I yes. actually say that too. <laughs> but in this case, and, you but, really but, nailed it. You really nailed this one down. I think. And this is special because if you see something similar on Earth, if you see such a ring of 12 stones around the center stone on Earth somewhere in nature, absolutely can immediately confirm that it's not random natural occurrence. <laughs> even, even with each individual rock boulder being irregular and maybe even each individual boulder looking like a natural block, if they are arranged like this, you would immediately see that it to be man-made on Earth, like I have seen personally in 2006. That is the last image here. Oh, no, it's not the last. It's uh, number 10 for my items. I uh, visited a stone circle in northeastern Germany in 2006. And uh, if you just look at the individual boulder, which are about one meter, three, three feet high, you, you would consider them to be natural boulders. But if you see the complete arrangement, which is here also in a 10 meter diameter circle here in Northern Germany, you immediately uh, associate that with uh, some man-made activity. In this case, it is considered to be 2,600 years old in Germany. In England, uh, I heard there, of course, now that there are many uh, more of those circles in that size, which are 
considerably smaller than Stonehenge, for example, which is uh, three times compared to this diameter in size, and also the blocks are larger, of course. But uh, this, this style of, of rings you find everywhere in Europe, this smaller type of irregular rings, uh, that is uh, quite common, and they are not random nature uh, artifacts. Well, they seem to have some sort of overarching meaning, because even if we're not too sure, case by case, what they, uh, what they were after, because so they must be inspired by something in common. You know, that make, makes this all the more curious. Yeah, I, uh, indeed. Now, uh, back then, in 2006, when I visited that, that uh, ring in Germany, that uh, the reason was I wanted to take a look at uh, tool marks on some of those, which are uh, similar sure. to those tool marks you see in Egypt, for example. And I was not uh, thinking much about the arrangement, uh, the total picture there, um, because I they they don't look spectacular. They, they are a bit uh, irregular arranged and uh, not really precise. Uh, so that was the reason I, I was not thinking much about the arrangement, the, the larger picture here. But uh, it's... Uh, still mysterious. Why have they been created like this? Is there some some key, some alignment to solar positions like equinox or the solstices like Stonehenge? But I have not much thought of those, those on Earth even. Yeah. But I've heard Maria maybe a bit more. Well, you know, Holger. you know, Hol Holger, out of out of yeah. all of your pictures. Uh, I think uh, one of the easiest ones to see the stone circle is your picture number one, where you can see that stone circle with its center point just left of center. It's really clear for people that haven't looked at these sorts of photos before. Uh, yes, so uh, for those who uh, are seeing that for the first time, that is indeed the item one should be the starting uh, point there. That is uh, the the detail we are talking about today, yeah? And it, it really, at first, uh, you think it's, uh, someone painted it there on the image there, but it's, it's real. It's a real object. And uh, it's about 10 meter diameter, uh, about 12 stones around a center stone, maybe 14. It's a bit difficult to see because uh, some of them has have a twin stone behind them or not completely in a circle. So about 12 to 14 stones, I would say. Each about one meter to one meter 50 in height. So three to five feet height. And the center one, maybe one meter 50 to two meter high. So three to six feet. How Completely similar to those in there. England or Germany. Uh, sorry? How deep is the dust around there on the lunar surface? I know it varies from place to place, but I've seen the ref read a reference of it somewhere. An interesting question because uh, that is even discussed in the uh, Lunar Surveyor 3 uh, mission report, the robotic mission from 1967, where they are discussing uh, how deep are in general those observed rocks and boulders uh, uh, sunken into the surface. That is a, just a normal scientific discussion there. 
Yeah. And how deep those ring rocks are in the ground, we don't know. And the dust surface itself is only three centimeter, a bit more than one inch. Uh, what was observed by the astronauts when walking around there, they only sank about one inch maximum with their boots into the ground. So it's, pretty it's much what thing. we see is what we get. Yeah, I got that impression from the transcript because they were talking about dust getting all over everything, and yet nothing seemed to be sinking very deep into it. So yeah, they didn't have any problems with walking around. Uh, yeah. But also on Earth, if uh, I remember that site in Germany there, uh, those mm -hmm. rocks I would consider to be at least half to even the same size uh, below ground. So that's there in, gen in, in total then twice the size you see above ground. That would be my estimation from those I've seen on Earth. Yeah. Well, sometimes you have to get there with a shovel, I guess. Uh, the those moai that are so famous on Easter Island. Uh, yeah, yeah, much deeper, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah I we're only seeing about 25% of them sticking up over the ground. I, I was surprised to see them the first time about 10 years ago in, on a photo. Only having seen the, the heads before. And then uh, after they have been dug out, you see they are complete... Uh, uh, human-like figures which, <laughs> with the body and feet below, uh, about three, three to four times larger than above ground. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, the, I remember the picture I saw that they had taken at the site, uh, you know, when they dug it up. And they, uh, you could, they were all grinning, you know, like they knew they had really found something, something remarkable because they, they expected them to be, you know, just a, featureless shaft and in fact they were fully detailed so, but in this case it, this looks like a uh, a real stonehenge type arrangement stone circles in the british isles for example don't have that much stone beneath the ground in fact at avebury some of the stones are only 18 inches in the ground because they're in the solid chalk bedrock they're not in the earth and i think this is going to be the case on the lunar stone circle as well that they're going to be in the kind of basalt rock so they don't need much below ground it's all about the engineering of the stones that uh, yeah, good to know that uh, so only half a meter below ground, and then maybe uh, uh, one meter above ground on the moon. Then yeah. yeah, thank you, Maria. That actually is is pretty significant because that means that pretty much anything we see around there is largely what we're looking at. You know, we're not seeing a misleading piece of something else. No, when you have a look at, for example, some of my uh, pictures, number one and two, they are identical to some of the stone circles in the British Isles. And it's uh, with a diameter of 10 metres. Now, the very early sites, which we call Neolithic over here, about 6,000 years ago, they're huge, like Stonehenge and like Avebryhenge, which has a diameter of 1,088 feet. However, when it comes to the Bronze Age, they become much smaller. 
that's where this category of the moon fits in. It's like a Bronze Age stone circle. And like I said, there are some fascinating examples where you go to Wales in Monmouthshire, for example, which is my aerial shot number one and picture number two, and they are uh-huh. literally like twins. Wow. Yeah, the, the same circle I saw in northeast Germany, the same type. And yeah, that's I'm now thinking about well, it, I'm, I'm also wondering what, what was the purpose of those on Earth, even with that. Is there some discussion ongoing? On, in the German mm-hmm. side, nobody uh, really knows. There are some uh, sagas, <laughs> stories, of course, that uh, people <laughs> were converted to stones and dancing around, but nothing really scientific ongoing there is ex- explanation. Maria, Maria, your picture number two is is stunning. You can really see the the moon circle superimposed on on the Earth. That's a great photo. Thank you. Uh, that was for the example to show that the technology used on Earth is going to be very similar to what's being used on the moon because that cannot be coincidental because there's such uh, a likeness. Now, the idea about stone circles in the UK with all of our uh, advances in geomancy suggests that the earth currents and some lays are actually from the magma with inside of the earth. Master Dancer Hamish Miller points out that the earth currents, Maria Michael, which are associated to a ley line, that's called a, Mm -hmm. a ley system, where you have two currents entwining a ley, actually are stemmed from the biomagnetic energy from the molten magma in the heart of the earth. So it's the heart of the earth that produces these earth currents. Now, even though on the moon there's inactive volcanic activity today, I mean, there's just no uh, activity there, there's probably going to be a lot of magma beneath the surface of the moon, which would make any lunar currents akin to earth currents on the moon twice as powerful than on earth. Oh. Well, could the relationship between uh, the gravitational effects between the Earth and the Moon have any uh, effect on that to multiply Multiply it? Yeah, yeah. Yes, probability. That's what Amos Miller was pointing out. Ah, I love it when stuff ties together. Maria, years and years ago, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard something about the Avebury stones, where as the stones circled around in a circle, you would have sort of a masculine stone and then a shorter, squattier feminine stone. And and all around the ring, it would be masculine, feminine, or positive, negative, positive, negative. Have you found that to be true, or is that just a myth? Well, in part, you're partly correct. It was actually Professor Stuart Piggott and the archaeologist Alexander Keeler that came out with the terms masculine and feminine. What a feminine stone is claimed to be at Avebury is a diamond-shaped stone. So if you imagine more of a diamond shape, that's said to be a feminine stone. And the more column-like stones are said to be the the phallic masculine stones. But it doesn't Mm -hmm. go positive-negative. Intriguingly so, in the southern inner circle at Avebury, you you had a gigantic masculine stone at the centre and then feminine stones surrounding that. So at the eightfold year of the equinoxes and the solstices and the cross-quarter days, the shadow of the 
obelisk stone would hit one of the feminine stones, uh, making it kind of calendrical to some regard. So, yes, there are masculine and feminine stones, but they are contained within a stone circle. And along the Avebury Avenue, they are paired to be opposite each other, a masculine and a feminine stone. Oh. Oh. Wow. You say, you say these things and then just stop, and my mind is just reeling. That's uh, yeah. That's yes. That's well, I, I studied the uh, the stones at Avebury over you know uh-huh. many many years, and have yes. um, written a, a book uh, about all of the the stones. But what really charges the stones with uh, energy? is if they're rooted into an earth current or an earth energy pattern. What I suspect is going on on the moon is that there's a circular type of earth energy called a primary halo. It consists of three rings of concentric energy constantly charging. I've recently said on other media programs that Atlantis was based on this. The circular city of Atlantis was based on being sighted on the primary halo, then that charges the stones with energy and you get megalithic energy. And the the interesting thing is the stone, and we've measured this um, uh, completely about 10 years ago. Uh I've got an article on my website about it. We measured the uh, energy coming out of the megaliths. So what we uh, think is going on is they're sighted on circular earth energy patterns. The stone kind of changes that earth energy to aerial energy and then projects it to other stones in a stone circle. And I show this, for for example, on the, uh, I think it's number seven on my, my pictures. It's called crosstalk. So if we have a look at that energetic crosstalk of the Rollwright stone circle, where each stone is beaming um uh, it's about 18 hertz, actually, frequency at another stone. It makes the stone circle come alive. And I think that exactly like what's going on in uh, my slide number seven is happening on the lunar surface. It's not a random stone circle. It's an active no. stone circle. Wow. I like again, that. Again, Maria, maybe you can answer this. Um, I ran across, again, something called, the, manip- the manipulation of the earth currents could be directed along a ley line, directed to a stone circle, spun a few times to amp up the energy, and then project out along another ley line at a higher caliber. Uh, the the evidence so far, and what uh, geomancers is over here uh, think, is that the earth currents entwine uh, the line. They're very difficult to manipulate. They will go back. To, to where they are. It's almost like Gaia, the Earth energies are far, far more powerful than us. But yes, mm-hmm. they do feed the lay system with uh, energy. So they are all kind of energetically feeding a greater system that is going around, it's believed, the world worldwide. So the lays, it was interesting. In uh, the 1970s, there was an agricultural scientist that looked into seed enhancement with with lays and earth currents. And he concluded categorically that uh, any plant life that is sensitive does not do well on lays because energy travels too fast on a straight line, on a lay. They are highly charged uh, forces of lines that go through the earth. 
Oh, that's like putting too much fertilizer on your um, houseplants. Uh, exactly. And that's what, what he found. I mean, yeah, but some trees like fir trees, evergreens, they thrive on the lays, but most plant life doesn't. So he concluded that what the ancients were doing, they were kind of fertilizing the, the world especially from uh, large sites like Stonehenge and the pyramids, but you wouldn't live on these uh, lay systems. For example, at Avebury today, there's a village there and, in fact, a pub as well, but you no ancient ancestor lived there. Their settlements were miles away, miles away from these stone circles. You know, that's what... Chase, do we need a break at the top of the hour here? Please, I believe so. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports, We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.